Well, thank you for the opportunity to be back with you at the First Baptist Church of Pelham. I always love being with your pastor, Davin. I said it in the early service, I'll say it to you. I believe it, I mean it. I would rather hear him preach than anyone I know, including myself. I'd rather hear him preach, I'll tell you. He's an outstanding preacher. You are blessed beyond measure with him as your leader. So I just want to affirm that. I also want to further give affirmation to you as an exemplary church in giving through the cooperative program so that the gospel representation can be anywhere and everywhere, here and there and around the world, North America and right here in Alabama, all of it. So we appreciate your faithfulness in giving through, not to, but through the cooperative program. And as I said, you are an exemplary congregation related to that. We also have a state missions offering, Myers Mallory, the first to know this, but actually last week we have $1.2 million goal, and last week Alabama Baptist pushed us right across the top of that goal. It's $1,002,000, so praise the Lord for that. Yeah, well, thank you. I'm not much on bumper stickers. In fact, sometimes I become irritated in seeing a vehicle in front of me or parked somewhere. It just has a maze of bumper stickers. Usually, of course, they mean something kind of humorous, sarcastic, times very political. Yeah, that goes on too. And then some just mean to be offensive. They want to get on your nerves. They want to pull your chains by just that little brief bumper sticker. I heard about through a minister that I know one that really is extraordinary to me. He, he said he was following a vehicle, and when the red light caught them, he looked on the back at the bumper, and this was a full statement, I am a generic Christian. Well, he thought, my goodness, what a statement. So he followed the man, which is kind of dangerous to do, by the way. He followed the man into a car wash, and after both of them got their cars washed, he stopped him. He said, can I just ask you, your bumper sticker really intrigues me. What, what do you mean, I am a generic Christian? Well, he says, that means I want to go to heaven. I want to live eternity in heaven, not hell. But I don't want to be involved in any congregation. I don't want to go and hear any preaching. I'm not really up on Bible teaching. I'm just a generic Christian. When I heard about that, I thought to myself, well, there is a huge category, regrettably, of Christians that might fall in the generic category. Ones who maybe grew up in a Christian home, maybe not, but have some deal of belief in Christ and in Christianity, but it may not be personal. I am a generic Christian, he said. Well, the opposite of being generic is being authentic. There could be a pretty good spectrum there. And our goal as we come along as Christians is to move away from being generic, look at that as being anathema, move away from that and move closer and closer, not 100% perfect, whenever we'll be, to an authentic Christian. A good example of what I'm talking about is in Acts chapter 3. Now, if you know anything about Acts itself, you know that it's a continuation of the ministry of Jesus. In, in fact, it was written by Luke. Luke was both a historian and a physician, as well as, I should say, a friend to the early apostles 
and truly to the Apostle Paul himself. So he gave his account in the Gospel of Luke concerning the life and ministry, death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then we come to the book of Acts, and where he do, what he does here, it's a continuation of the ministry of Jesus, but this time, because of the power and presence of the Holy Spirit, he's using human instruments. And Acts, he promises that. Acts 1.8, you will receive power after the Holy Spirit come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Well, they begin the ends of the earth emphasis in Acts chapter 1 and 2. Now in chapter 3, following the day of Pentecost, when Simon Peter preached an outstanding and eloquent message that really resonated, and the church itself was midwife into birth. Then you find in Acts chapter 3, what we might call mundane, routine matters of faith. Better yet, it's more meaningful than mundane. And it certainly was a life determination, a life change on the part of Simon Peter and John. Simon Peter was that one we know of as the one who denied Christ. First he said, no matter what anyone else does, I'll never deny you, but not once, not twice, not time, Simon Peter denied Christ. Now this transformed man, this authentic Christian, Simon Peter, now accompanying with John, making his way into the temple to pray. Now Peter and John, chapter 3, verse 1, now Peter and John went up together to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour, and a certain man lame from his mother's womb, was carried with whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple, which is called beautiful, by the way. And that beautiful gate was huge. In fact, some commentators believe it might have been so formidable that it would take 20 men to open and close it. Pretty good-sized gate, pretty heavy fortress. But there they were at the gate of the beautiful, and his routine was to be parked there, positioned there, brought by people so that he could ask for alms, which is really charity giving in the most definite sense of the word. But he saw Peter and John. Now, Peter and John had been going to this temple before. This is not the first time. They were devout, and they were coming from the Jewish heritage, Jewish background, now transformed as believers of Christ and helping to begin and, and further the Christian movement. But... Something about, something about Simon, Peter, and John were different. Maybe someone made a difference. Christ, through the power of his Holy Spirit, made a difference in the lives of Simon, Peter, and John. This lame man, seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, asked alms. Now, let, let's just get this. This man was more like a fixture than he was a person. It was routine for people to see him. He, he was one of those individual people. You see him, but you don't see him. We have all kinds of people in our sphere of influence and in our traffic patterns of life who are like invisible. We see them, but we really don't see them. But this day was different. The invisible became visible. And fixing his eyes with John, Peter said, Look at us. Look at us. That sounds egocentric, but 
of that is, look what's happened to us. The man gave them attention. This is the most important little phrase here. Expecting to receive something from them. I believe the world is expecting to receive something from authentic Christians. And we'll get to that something in a moment. Then Peter, he simply declared, silver and gold I do not have, but such as I have I will give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. You can't give what you don't have, but you can give what you do have. He didn't have any money, but he did have a message. And so he just challenged him. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Sounds gracious for a man who's never walked a day in his life. Sounds pretty abnormal for someone to challenge. It almost sounds like it's out of character to Ask someone who's never, ever walked, rise up and walk. But it's been prefaced. In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Now, when you say in the name of Jesus, you realize that names are important in the Old Testament, New Testament, but the name of Christ, the anointed one, God in flesh, when you invoke his name, you invoke his character, his power. But that he didn't stop there, though. And he took him by the right hand, and I don't want to get too far with this, I know some of us are left-handed, but the symbol in the Old Testament, New Testament, is right hand. I'll have to confess, when I was born, I was a left-handed child. My parents made me into a right-handed dominant child. Now that's my problem, what's yours? Strong right hand is a symbol of, of might and strength. He lifted him up, that is, just gave him one hand now, by the way, lifting him up while he's, he's leaping up. He didn't just come up, he leaped up, and he stood there by himself. He stood, first time in his life. He walked, first time in his life. Stood there, walking, leaping, his feet and ankle bones received strength. So, this is what happened after that. This is what caused the holy commotion. So, he was leaping up, stood up, walked, entered into the temple. May never have been there before. Stood there in the temple, walking, leaping, and praising God. What is a staid, stoic service now became a holiness meeting. And all the people who saw it, all saw the man walking and praising God, then they knew it was he who was sitting at the beautiful gate asking, begging for money at the temple gate. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Now, wouldn't you be? So what is it about authentic Christianity? What is it by this example, exhibit A, perhaps, of Peter and John? What something that happened 2,000 years ago that has application and pertinence for us today? Well, it is this same thing. That man expected to receive something from them. The world expects to receive something from us. We're gathered here, cloistered here to worship. We know what that's all about. But the world doesn't have a real good understanding of it, nor are they in tune enough to have an understanding, perhaps. So what is it that makes an authentic Christian authentic? 
What makes him different from a generic Christian? What makes him or her different from someone who's just kind of having a brand and a name but not having the power and presence of God working in his life or her life? Well, I want to make some observations. First, I think authentic Christians are praying people. What were Peter and John doing? They were going into the temple at the prescribed hour, and there they were. They were going to go through the prayer routine. You see, they were still tethered to the temple. They had not yet begun church houses. That comes later, but right now they're temple people. They're Christians going to the temple to pray to the one God, and because they knew the God in flesh, Jesus Christ, who became the Word made flesh to dwell among us, and therefore they were praying people. I lost a prayer partner recently. I, I just amazed at his life, really. People around him, you think he's pretty simple-minded. He, was, he had a pure southern South Georgia accent, really. The first time I met him, I thought, good gracious. What part of the South did he come from? I thought I was a Southerner. He, he was Southern. He, had, he would take a, a one-syllable word, make three or four syllables out of it. He just glowed and drawled through the language. But between the ears, he was highly intelligent. And he had the best heart of anyone I've ever met. He was my prayer partner, one of them. Well, I served as pastor at First Baptist Tuscaloosa, and I've been, been gone from there 23 and a half years. But up until two weeks ago when he passed away, he would call me, check in with me, and say, now, call me pastor, I'm still praying for you. He was my prayer partner. You probably have prayer, prayer partners too. People who can be confidants. You see, you can't just pray with just anyone. You have to pray with someone who has your best interest in mind and wants you to grow as a believer. It's a reciprocal relationship. It's not just one-sided. But more than a prayer partner, this man was a prayer warrior. I have to admit to you, most of the prayer warriors I've ever encountered in my churches where I served and throughout the entirety of my ministry, which now is admittedly decades long, the ones that I thought were prayer warriors most were women. Very few men. There were some, but whenever there was a man, there'd be three others who were women. I will never forget those occasions when women would just simply say to me, older, they would simply say, Pastor, I'm praying for you today. Pastor, whatever you're facing this next week, I'll be praying for you, taking prayer seriously. Now that's why Jesus taught us how to pray the disciples needed to know it was not a template for prayer. It was a focus on prayer. We call it the Lord's Prayer. That's why Paul said often, pray for us. Now keep in mind, Paul was, and in terms of influence, a way distant second to Jesus in the New Testament. He's the one who had that transforming Damascus Road experience, and yet he became a if you will, a proclaimer of the gospel, a missionary, a church planter, a church revitalizer, an international missionary of sorts. But yet he would just simply say, pray for us. That's the prayer that I have right now for you, that you would pray for each other and pray for each other 
and pray that together you make a difference in a world that needs to make, have a difference made. Praying people, caring people. The man asked for something. They didn't have exactly what he wanted, but he had something that is Peter and John to share. They, they gave him Jesus. And that's the best gift you can give in the world. If you think about Christmas season, the best Christmas gift was the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. Caring people. George H.W. Bush, I've always been interested in American history, military history, presidential history, and that kind of got all woven together in his life. But he really never wrote a biography of sorts. They had similar, but not quite true biography. In his post-presidential time from 1992 to 2018 when he died, he had a chief of staff, and her role was to keep his itinerary, busy they are, former presidents, busy as they want to be, and all the things he would, would try to do. And he was a little bit of a high-maintenance kind of guy, but known for his humility. He would come in from time to time and plant an idea in the minds of his staff and say, now y'all go, y'all go take care of it. One day she was utterly shocked when he came in and says, I want to go back to the island where I was shot down in the South Pacific during World War II. Remember now, George H.W. Bush was the youngest pilot ever in the United States Navy in World War II. He was 19 years old. When others of his blue blood background were going to college and university, he felt it a duty to serve his country. And off he went, and he almost gave his life for his country. His role was to take his little fighter plane and strafe the island and go for the radio center, a communication center there. That was the mission. Problem is, they got shot down. Two of his crewmates died. He was floating in the water, waiting for someone to rescue him. He could see at a distance, not too far though, Japanese boats coming his way. Had they apprehended him, he more than likely would have been beheaded. But, but just before they got out there, seemingly an impossible thing happened. A submarine came to the surface, and they fished him out of the water. There are old, grainy pictures of that. Now, fast forward, he's visiting this island. It was Japanese-controlled. They did speak Japanese, but they were not considered Japanese. And he had contacted, his staff had contacted the United States Navy to see if they could facilitate this. And they said, no, 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 that's too much of a precedent. So they contacted through the U.S. ambassador to Tokyo, the Japanese Navy. They jumped all over it. Oh, do you tell the president anything he needs, care of it. We will take him to the island and we'll make sure it's a celebrative experience. So several Navy vessels in the Japanese Navy Went to that little island. Only had 2,000 people on then. 2,000. Back in the war, less than 1,500. But one lady said, I remember you. I remember you getting shot down in the water. And I, and I thought, I was so concerned about those boats heading your way. See, they didn't care for the Japanese. They were occupied. And when I saw that submarine come up out of the water, and they... They got you out of the water to rescue. I said to a friend of mine standing beside me, I said, I guarantee you the United States will win this war because they care about one 
person. Caring. That's what the world is looking for us to do. Care. Not only in a time of obvious need, but having a care, the compassion of Jesus flowing through us like blood flowing through our veins. Praying people, caring people, sharing people. You notice now, he shared what he had, and that is, he did so and got in physically involved with it. Lifting him up and having him to stand. That, that's, to me, a symbol of discipleship. Reaching down and getting someone on their feet as far as a, a new person in Christ. And then the rest was controversial. A holy commotion. And because of that, these men, Peter and John, were brought before the religious tribunal and they were trying to explain themselves and trying to help them understand what was going on. But these same people had put Jesus to death and they thought they were rid of all that. But now they cannot deny Exhibit A, Miracle A here. This man they had known who was lame all of his life, not able to walk, was now walking, leaping, praising God. Because Peter and John, they shared what they had. Right in the midst of Katrina, these yellow shirts that we call Alabama Baptist Disaster Relief in the larger context, Southern Baptist Disaster Relief, they were all over. The footprint in Katrina, by the way, was as big as Great Britain. The impact area. Right on the south of Alabama, right below I-10, all the way over in Mississippi where it just balled it. It just carpet bombed everything, if you will, in sight. And then, of course, we know about the Lord not being able to hold up there in New Orleans. We had disaster relief workers on the Mississippi coast. And they were there feeding hot meals and having bottles of water. A family came up and a lady said, uh, are you serving hot meals here and offering bottled water? Yes? Well, how much is it, she said. And one of your DR workers said, free. Here because we believe this in the name of Christ. And therefore, you think it's free. And the lady said, thank you. We have not had a, a warm meal in five days. So there they go receiving this meal. They were sharing, that is, the DR workers were sharing what they had in the name of Christ. That's what we do. Our sharing is done through the name of Christ. But there's one other word I want you to look at, one other challenge, not only praying, not only caring, not only giving, but look now in chapter 4, verse 13. Chapter 4, verse 13 simply says, and they saw the boldness of Peter and John, and they perceived that they were untrained and uneducated people. And they were amazed because they had been with Jesus. That means daring, praying people, caring people, sharing people, daring people. They saw the boldness. It was, it's more than just courage. This boldness is really super courage. It's a courage beyond courage. It's the courage that stares down fear and has no trepidation whatsoever. They saw that, and then they perceived their weaknesses. 
They were untrained and uneducated men. Why in the world do we have these untrained and uneducated men here standing before us talking about a miracle of God when we are the rabbinical geniuses, the scholars? But that's exactly what happened. Saw their boldness, perceived their weakness, and they marveled at their uniqueness. They had been with Jesus. Wow, what authenticity. To be with Jesus means that you are with him, he is with you, you abide in him, he abides in you, and wherever you go, you're, you're a praying people, a sharing people, a caring people, and a daring people because of the difference maker, Jesus Christ, in your life. I want you to know, growing up not far from you here in Birmingham, at eight years of age, I became aware that I needed to know Jesus. I understood that I was a sinner. I had grown up in a Christian home, but I, I still, I just could not hardly believe that out of the billions of people in the world that God would be concerned about one little boy growing up in Birmingham, Alabama. So for four years, between 8 and 12, to the degree that a young boy can do so, I was trying to figure things out, intellectualize it to the degree I could, and I just didn't get it. Why would God be worried about me, until one pastor asked me this question. What has Jesus Christ done for you? What has he done? I answered, I don't know, just started talking. I, I, all of a sudden, my tongue started moving, and my brain was detached from my tongue. And I no telling what I said. But after I got through babbling, he said, yes, all of that is true. But didn't he die on the cross just for you. Now, I knew God so loved the world, but I had trouble understanding the just for you part of it. This is the truth. Had you been the only sinner who needed to be saved, Jesus would have gone to the same cross, died the same death, resurrected in the same grave, just for you. That's the difference. So today, no matter where you are, you can, in your pilgrimage, you can move from just being generic to middle ground to becoming more authentic in Christ. You can, actually some people can be so generic that they're synthetic as Christians. And that's an anathema. You don't want to be that. You want to move toward authenticity. But like Peter and John of old, God has to do a work in your life. His Spirit has to, through the, the work of His Spirit, convict you of your sins so that you can come to know Christ, repenting of your sin and coming to know Christ. And begin a pilgrimage we call discipleship, a walk by faith. So as together you might live out your mission, disciple-making with a global impact. That's what it's all about. And today, we know now better, I hope, what an authentic Christian really means. Would you stand with me, please, and bow your heads in a time of prayer. Father and God, we do pray today for authenticity. We pray if there's anything that's standing in our way of becoming more authentic with you, that it would be allevi alleviated, that it'd be eradicated. 
We pray for these who have gathered. May your Holy Spirit do work in their lives. We ask, Lord Jesus, that today there might be some who do not know you, do not trust you. May this be the time and place of the decision-making for those who need to make recommitments or to become a part of this church. We pray that it will happen just now. We pray this prayer in Jesus' name.